every king of Israel in the north is a thumbs-down king. Joram is a king of Israel, so what do you think he is? You're with me, right? Yeah. Two thumbs down. That's right. Look at verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Two thumbs down. Now, he may not be six thumbs down, right? Like his dad Ahab had been. Verse 2 said he wasn't as bad as all that. He did, at least for a time, put away that major sacred stone of Baal. But he didn't worship the Lord alone. And he didn't lead Israel to worship Yahweh alone. He was two thumbs down at least. So what's that tell us? What do we know about him? We know life will be hard for him. We know there will be consequences for his choices. Maybe not always in the short run, but always in the long run. With disobedience comes danger. There will be consequences for Joram's choices, and we will see some of them today. In fact, it's from him that we'll learn most of our don't list today. You know, do's and don'ts list? This is just a don't list today. How not to relate to God. The story in chapter 3 revolves around the revolt of Moab. Moab was, at this point in history, something of a vassal state to Israel. They had been subjects of the United Kingdom since the time of King David and had apparently still owed the northern kingdom tribute or taxes. But they didn't want to pay them. They didn't want to stay in that relationship. They wanted out. Verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now this is interesting. Does anybody know what this is up here on the screen? I'll be surprised if you do, but I'd be happy to be surprised. Anybody know what this is? This is the Moabite stone. The Moabite stone discovered intact in 1868, okay? That wasn't that long ago, 1868. It is also called, ready for this? The Misha Stile. The Misha Stile. Because it dates from the time of King Misha of 2 Kings 3. And it describes in Misha's own words, in his writing voice, what he thought of as his greatest accomplishments. Okay, this is a monument Misha set up for himself, Okay. We have monuments like in Washington, D.C. This is one of his monuments to himself. And these great heroic accomplishments of Misha included winning victories in the northern area of his kingdom, up at the Arnon Gorge, in the land of Medaba, and slaughtering 7,000 Israelites in devotion to his god Shemosh. It also describes how oppressed Misha had felt as a neighbor of Israel, especially during the years of King Omri of Israel. It names Omri, it names Israel, it names Yahweh. This is a very interesting piece for archaeology. You can read about it online. You see those cracks in it? 
You see the, can you see the cracks from back there? Kind of how it's pieced together. Interestingly, that, that happened after it was discovered. After a scholar had made an imprint of the front. But the people, the local people in Jordan, modern day Jordan, split it up into pieces so the West couldn't have it. But eventually they got it pieced back together and it is now displayed at the Louvre in Paris. This is one of the oldest surviving pieces of inscribed stones to have the name Yahweh inscribed on it. So it was probably done by, or at least for, Misha himself. And it gives you a window into the feelings and thoughts that would lead him to rebel against King Joram. He doesn't mention, by the way, he does not mention the events of 2 Kings 3 on his stele. And I think we'll see why in just a second. So it's Jordan versus Misha, right? Joram versus Misha. Who should win this one? Hmm. That's a hard question, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got an enemy of Israel. Loves killing Israelites. 7,000 of them dedicated to his god Shemosh. And on the other side of the battle, you've got a two-thumbs-down wicked king of Israel. This one's a hard one to call. But Joram calls on his royal neighbor Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. This is the same one as before. Verse 6. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He's fixing to win back the service of Moab, but he needs some help. Verse 7, he also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Does, that, does this sound kind of familiar? The way that this is, is playing out? This is the same thing that Jehoshaphat, who never jumps, unfortunately, this is the same thing that Jehoshaphat said to Joram's daddy, King Ahab, back in 1 Kings 22. When Ahab wanted to fight a battle and he called Jehoshaphat, would you come along? And he said, oh yeah, you are as I are, uh, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. That story didn't turn out so good. That fact was the death of Ahab. So that might give us a clue that this isn't the best idea. And unlike that time, Jehoshaphat doesn't ask for a prophet to confirm that this is God's plan for them. It kind of looks like they might be walking into a trap. Verse 8. By what route shall we attack? He asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Uh Uh-oh, right? This plan is not turning out so well. Joram said they needed to take the southern route. Why do you think that was? Well, it doesn't say. But I think it's because Misha has won so many battles in the north. He's strong up there. The Misha Stele told us that. So they have to come from the desert of Edom. That's coming in from the southern route. Seven days in the desert of Edom. What could go wrong? Right? Well, they ran out of water. But Joram has not run out of excuses. Verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Here's point for you this morning. Don't blame God for your errors. How not to relate to God? Point number one, 
don't blame the Lord for your own errors. I don't think there's any evidence that the Lord sent the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and their friend, the king of Edom, on this mission. Do you? Have you heard any sense that God is doing this? But Joram, he acts like it's all God's fault. He acts scandalized. Why is this happening to me? Why did God lead us here and then dump us? Now, it would be a mistake to grumble and complain even if God had led them there, right? The Lord had led Moses and the Israelites to the desert, and they got thirsty too. Not right to complain or grumble. But I think that Joram is using the Lord's name in vain. He's passing the buck. And not blaming just anybody, but the Lord Himself. You know, that's a very old way of sinning. Remember what the Lord, when the Lord caught Adam red-handed in the garden? He's got the apple, right? And he's like hiding it behind his back. What did he say? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's basically your fault, God. Have you ever done this one? Lord, you made me this way. Lord, you put me in this family, in this job, in this situation, near this temptation. And Joram is going even further. He's saying, God, you led me to make this mistake. Not a wise thing to do. If you're doing anything like that, repent. But King Jehoshaphat, for all of his weaknesses, often makes wise choices. He knows where to turn. Verse 11. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Ah, now he's wising up. Now he's thinking, Ah, we should be talking to the Lord about this. Just like we did in 1 Kings 22. We should be doing that now. And yes, there is a prophet here. Three guesses, two of them don't count. Who's, who's there? Elisha. That's right. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. He was his servant. Now he's the head prophet. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. There's the right place to turn. Probably should have gone there first. These are the days of Elisha. Let's hear what he has to say. And it's not soft. He doesn't lead off with soft words. Verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. As the kids say these days, that's a sick burn. Here's number two. How not to relate to God? Don't seek God only when you're in trouble. Amen? Don't seek God only when you're in trouble. Elijah's like, what, have we met? I've never seen you at church before. What do we have to do with each other? I'm a prophet of Yahweh. What are you? You're not a worshiper of Yahweh. You worship the gods of your father, Ahab, and the gods of your mother, Jezebel. Get out of here. Don't seek the one true God only when you're in trouble. Have you ever made that mistake? I know I have so many times. We turn to the Lord when the water runs out, not when it's flowing. And that's a mistake. 
Now, some people say, don't turn to the Lord if you're in trouble. But that's not right either. God wants us to bring our troubles to Him. Seek the Lord at all times. Cry out to the Lord in your distress. Even if you haven't been, He is the right place to go. He loves to answer needy people who turn to Him. But don't just do it then. Do it all the time. Like the song says, Blessed be Your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be Your name. I call on You then. Yes! But also, the other side of the song, Blessed be Your name in the land that is plentiful, where Your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be Your name. Every blessing You pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. That song says that we praise the Lord in the bad times and the good times, not just one or the other. That's because God wants an everyday relationship with us, not just on the bad days, not just on the hard days. Don't God only when you're in trouble. Do it then. If you're in trouble now, call out to Him. But don't stop when the trouble stops. He wants all of you. Joram was only looking for a way out. He didn't really care about God. That's why Elisha met him with all the snarcasm, right? What have we to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Why are you so interested now, huh? Verse 13. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. There he goes again. He's still blaming God. And just about saying that God has evil plans. This is a textbook case of what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. It's just about blasphemy. And guess what God is going to do next? He's going to rescue him. Wait, what? Joram's doing everything wrong here. He's blaming God for his own mistakes and he's seeking God only when he's in a fix. And we're going to see that God is going to help him anyway. Not because there's anything great about King Joram, but because of grace. Look at verse 14. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But he's actually going to help him. Here's point number three this morning. How not to relate to God? Don't come to God on your own. Don't come to God on your own. And by that I mean on your own merits. Don't come just by yourself and say, I'm worthy of your help, O God. In fact, you've got to help me. I deserve it. You've got me into this fix. And that's your job, God, to get people out of their problems, including their sins. So come on, let's go. Don't come to God on your own. Joram had all kinds of sin hanging off of him. He had no record with God to build on. But verse 14 says that he was there with King Jehoshaphat of Judah. He was there with a true man of God. He was there with a true son of David. And because Jehoshaphat was with him, Elisha says, I'll do it. Now, I don't want to make too much of that. 
But it sounds a little bit like King Jesus, doesn't it? When these kings are at their worst, they show us that we need King Jesus. That's Joram. He needed help for sure. And when these kings are at their best, they remind us of King Jesus. Here they remind us that when we are with Him, we can ask God for anything. Salvation, prayer requests, anything. You and I don't come to God on our own. We come through the blood of Jesus Christ. He, we come through being connected to the person of Jesus Christ. We're with Him. Isn't it amazing that we can pray in the name of Jesus Christ? You know, in the name of Jesus Christ is not just a cute little phrase that we tack onto our prayers. Right? It's not just a little ritual we do. It's not a mantra. It's a powerful reality that we come to God in prayer, not on our own merits, but on Jesus's. I heard someone say the other day, it's like Jesus gave us the password to his account. Yeah. We get in because we're with him. Don't come to God on your own. Come through Jesus. If you've never come to God for salvation, hear this. There's only one way. Jesus said He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. So come to Him. By the Father. To the Father. By Him. You're invited. You won't get there on your own. But come to Him through Jesus. And pray. Jesus is our password to God in prayer. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Jesus we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Access to the Father. Are we taking advantage of that access? Are we praying? Are we praying in Jesus' name? I had a friend at Moody Bible Institute named Bob. His last name was Drew. He was one of those guys with uh, two first names. You know, Bob Drew. And Bob would always start his prayer by saying, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. That really hit me. He didn't just tack it on to the end. That's a little thing to make sure that we all know we're done. You know? It really stood out to me that what was going on when we pray in the name of Jesus was that we were coming to God through Jesus. Don't come to God on your own. Joram needed David's son Jehoshaphat to get Elisha to help and you and I need Jesus, great David's greatest son, to find the help that we need. Here's number four. How not to relate to God. Don't underestimate what God can do. Look at verse 14 once again. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not, respect, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. Now verse 16 is hard to translate from the Hebrew. It could mean, as the NIV and the King James have here, that they should ditch some, they should dig some ditches in expectation of all the water. But it's actually more likely that it's saying that the Lord Himself is going to do it all. He's going to fill the valley full of pools of water. And they don't have to do anything. It's a desert. And they're dying of thirst. 
But tomorrow, God says, they will have plenty of water, enough for them and for their animals. God says so. But that's not all, He says. Listen to verse 18 again. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overtake, overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. I almost titled this message, That's Nothing, Watch This. Because that's how Elisha talks in verse 18, isn't it? That's an easy thing, he says. That's a light thing. (sighs) No big deal. It's nothing. Easy peasy. You want to really see something? Let me show you what I can do. In other words, don't underestimate God. He loves to do big things that bring Him the glory. I can be so guilty of this one. I'm always selling God short. I'm always hedging the bets. My prayers are not just too few, but too small. Can you relate to that? Sometimes, because God doesn't always answer my prayers when or how I like Him to, I begin to act like God can't do big things. Actually, when He's saying no or wait to my prayer requests, it's because He has something bigger and better in mind. Don't underestimate what God can do. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Not only will He do that, He'll also do this too. Above my desk right now in my office, I have the words of a John Newton hymn posted to remind me to pray bigger prayers. It's called, Thou Art Coming to a King. Do you know that one? Thou Art Coming to a King. The second stanza says, Thou Art Coming to a King, Large Petitions with Thee Bring. Don't just bring the small stuff. Bring the small stuff. But don't just bring the small stuff. For His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. Amen? Elisha has spoken the word of the Lord. And it's exactly what happens. Verse 20. The next morning about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. And the Lord used that to do another thing. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. Now there's a lot of plays on words here. Edom means red and and, the, and the, probably the sandstone is red, and, 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 and the blood is red. They're like, it's red, red, red. They, and what did they do? They underestimated what it would take to win. They're like, oh, these guys are fighting against each other. It'll be easy. But when the Moabites came into the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites, just like God said. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Hareseth was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. I think that's why it's not written on the black stone, right? Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as a king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. 
Chemosh. What a God. But here's the surprising ending to this story. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Wait, what? What What did that last verse say? After all of that, they go home without ruling Moab as well? Again? Yeah. Even though Yahweh brought them victory in town after town and field after field, just like He said He would, He didn't promise Joram that He would continue to rule over Moab. Even though the king of Moab desperately sacrificed his own son to Shemosh, the evil pagan god of Moab, and total victory was right there in Israel's hands, they went home deflated, if not defeated. Why? Well, it doesn't say much. It doesn't give me much to go on. It just says the fury against Israel was great. Now, that could mean the fury of Moab because they lost their prince to this sacrifice. So they fought him hard and Israel went home. And it's also possible that it is the fury of the Israelites themselves upon them, disgusted at the human sacrifice, like, oh, I don't even know what to think. I'm going home. But I think that the clearest meaning is that God was angry with them. Not because of Moab, but because of Joram. He's two thumbs down. And he never stops being two thumbs down. Verse 3 told us that at the beginning of the chapter. God may be gracious to him in the short run. But because, and Moab does not take Israel down. But Israel doesn't get to continue ruling over Moab either. Don't underestimate what God can do, even in judging Israel. Even in bringing discipline. Don't forget that the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, the God of Elisha, is a dangerous God. We saw it two weeks ago. We saw it last week. And here it is again. Don't trifle with this God. He is serious, and he's not tame. You don't put this God in your back pocket. At the end of the story, Joram could have said, I've been living like the devil. Then I made God feel bad because I told him, I put you in this place. You put me in this place. And then I called in Jehoshaphat. We called in some prophet, and then we won. Yeah, Joram. No. God is good, but he is not tame he's not a great grandfather in the sky he is the lord of heaven and earth and he is not to be underestimated don't blame god for your errors don't seek god only when you're in trouble don't come to god on your own and don't underestimate what god can do that's how not to relate to the god of elisha